Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and read me on Bleacher Report. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear just me talking about what I exclusively feel are the most important or interesting topics in the sports world, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that's here. All right, so I am going to get into the conclusion of the 10-part series, The Last Dance, the so-called documentary, I'm using air quotes on that, on Jordan and the 1997-98 Bulls. Uh, but I just got finished with uh, an appearance on Speak for Yourself on FS1, and we were discussing the question, will young athletes try to emulate Michael Jordan's bully tactics that became readily visible in the 10-part series? And I, I'm, I'm getting into this because we had, I don't know, six minutes or so at the most for the three of us to discuss it, and we didn't get very far, and I feel as if I didn't really get a chance to express myself in full uh, regarding the subject, because essentially Marcellus Wiley and Jason Whitlock are of the mind that, yes, we are going to see young players today emulate. We're going to see fights and practices, which, which we very well may, but are those fights going to be effective? Are they going to accomplish the same thing that Jordan did? That assuredly they won't. And I don't believe that we're going to see that emulation in any way. It's not going to happen because players today don't know how. And this is essentially where I think the conversation went uh, in a direction that I did not intend it, which is to suggest that I think that today's players are softer than the players back in the day. I don't believe that in and of itself. What I believe is that we have collectively become softer. Coaches have become softer. Parents have become softer. And as a result, players have become softer. Some of this is beyond anybody's particular responsibility. It's the presence of social media. Today's world for teenage kids 
is one big high school as a result of social media. The world and anyone in it, in and around their age or acting their age, has access to everybody else. So the opportunity that we see all the time in high school of picking on somebody, of creating pecking orders, of all of the stupid stuff, juvenile stuff that we do when we're in high school, that now is global and is easily accessible to everyone. And everyone is exposed to it. So, I, I look, I say this having coached AAU basketball in that I was surprised at how players are afraid to challenge each other in the least way possible. They just won't. The demands on each other, it's just not there. And I believe that there's a couple of factors that have created this. One is obviously the fear of social media. Everybody's afraid of the backlash of doing or saying something that is going to cause all sorts of people to come down on you. I think my daughter referred to it as cancel culture. I believe the other aspect is that because we've become so conscious of the safety of our kids, allowing kids just to run around and play uh, sports on their own uh, doesn't happen as much. I tried to have a, to create a pickup just for kids to show up. Parents drop them off. Kids can play up and down. We're not using referees. You pick your own teams. It lasted, I think, maybe two weeks. We had a great turnout the first day, the second time, a little less. And then we were down to like five or six kids who were just the hardcore hoopers. And it was because they weren't used to a completely unorganized situation. And the the parents on day one, they all stuck around and they watched. And I was like, you guys call your own fouls. We're just, I'm just letting you play. And it was so foreign and I believe so uncomfortable for the parents, even though I believe that's how they grew up, that they stopped bringing their kids. And the problem is that what you take away by only having organized sports is the opportunity for for kids to create their own pecking order, to to have their own conflict resolution, to figure it out, to have their feelings hurt. Uh, And that's the problem that I have, that we're even looking at what Jordan did with teammates. These are all adults, by the way. Teammates. And we say that he was bullying them. Now, bullying according to the, uh, the exact definition, is a person who, this is a bully, a person who habitually seeks to harm or intimidate those whom they perceive as vulnerable. Uh, and bullying is the verb, seek to harm, intimidate, or co- coerce someone perceived as vulnerable. So, was that what Jordan was doing? That he was bullying his teammates simply because they were vulnerable? Because they weren't good as he he was? Because they weren't as athletic as he was? Because they didn't have as much money as he did? Whatever it might be? I, I don't think so. He wasn't bullying them. 
he was making demands. He was, and, and we now we equate hurting someone's feelings with actually doing deep psychological damage to someone. Now, it is possible that with repeated abuse, behavior, comments, I'm not saying that the only kind of abuse is physical, the only kind of bullying is physical, not at all. But the example I used on the show, which I don't know if it came across, is he was talking, Michael Jordan was talking to Scott Burrell in the locker room at one point. And he said, hey, dog, don't be dog, try not to be dog food today. And I'm sure there's people who heard that and they're like, damn, that's bullying. No, it's not. And this is a, this is another distinction for me in that we've just lost our, uh, our understanding of language and the nuances of language. Oh, you're a hater. I think that's one of the greatest examples I have. Oh, you're a hater. No, there are what somebody is saying about somebody else isn't necessarily hate. That you don't like somebody else or that you have a different opinion than someone else doesn't mean you hate them. If you're critical of someone's action, or you believe that they made an error or that they are misperceived. That's not hating somebody. That's expressing an opinion about them. But we've lost all sight of that. So now everything gets dumbed down. And by the way, the rules seem to be made by the lowest common denominator. By people that are, let's face it, they're, they're not looking at the shades of gray. They want everything to be black and white. It, it's kind of the, you know, the back to the, the back back to the days of of, you know, crowdsourcing whether the Christians or the lion was supposed to, was supposed to survive in the battles in the coliseums. That's what that we, that's what social media has returned us to. That it's the crowd with the thumbs up, literally thumbs up or thumbs down, is determining people's fate as if the crowd knows better than everyone else. So, I kind of digress here. But, bottom line is that we've created a society. We've created an atmosphere now. And not just the kids. The kids are probably, they're, they're, they're simply the byproduct. How players act today is a byproduct of what we've created. Parents who believe that they can manipulate the system in order for their kids to get ahead. The so-called helicopter parents or bulldozer parents. Uh, we have coaches who are so afraid of losing the so-called talent that they concede their authority. Or, uh, and this is another reason why you won't see, I don't believe you'll see the Jordans rise up is because for that to happen, a coach has to, uh, has to support and cooperate and endorse what a particular is, uh, player is doing. Has to anoint or nominate a player as the best player who gets to be Jordan. Well, in most situations, coaches are afraid that their second best player and their third best player are going to go someplace else if they identify one guy as the guy. They're also afraid, I believe, that they might pick the wrong guy to be that guy. Because you can't just be the best player. 
has to be your best leader. And that ultimately is what Jordan was and that we don't give nearly enough credit to. I mean, we're having this subject about him bullying teammates and yet teammate after teammate, Scott Burrell included, is saying, I didn't see it as bullying. I saw it him as challenging people to be their best. There's such a wide difference between those two things, particularly with the definition that I just gave you of bullying. It was challenging us to be our best versus he was trying to do harm to people who were more vulnerable. I referenced this the other day when we came on this subject about the movie Whiplash. Uh, J.K. Simmons, I believe, is the uh, actor, uh, actor's real name, who was the director of a jazz band. And there's a drummer that is just passionate about jazz music and being a jazz drummer in particular. And in teaching his class, uh, J.K., the director, is unbelievably mentally manipulative, constantly waging war and pitting the students under him against each other and driving them well beyond uh, making them better musicians or making the band uh, work together. It's, it's, it's a power trip. It's clearly a power trip. And it drives the drummer, along with any number of people, psychotic. That's not what Jordan did. That's not, it doesn't come anywhere close. So, all right, so that's kind of where I'm, I'm at. I, I, the reason that I wanted to address this in the podcast is because Jason kind of left it as if I were suggesting, and I think Marcellus jumped on this too, that kids today are too soft and it's their fault. And that, or that kids, we were tougher back in our day. No, I think we were toughened more. I think we were given the opportunity to toughen ourselves. I think we were presented with different circumstances. We didn't have social media. We didn't fear what the entire world might say if we were caught on video doing something. It just that didn't exist. We, we, we lived in a bubble of sorts if it, if it came to that. We didn't have parents and coaches who sorted things out. You know, we got a healthy amount. I mean, certainly they did in, in certain situations, but a lot of it was, it was up to, uh, up to us to sort it out. It was up to us to recognize who's the best player here. It was up to us to pick teams and not have our feelings hurt if we were the last player picked, but be glad that we were picked or figure out a way, how do I make myself better so that I'll get picked sooner next time? All right, enough of that. Uh, so I, I said it at the start, before the last dance, the first episode was shown, that this 10-part series will show everyone that comparing anyone to Michael Jordan is laughable. Uh, look, uh, David Falk, his agent, Jerry Reinsdorf, Bulls owner, have both said, anybody who watches this, and still thinks that there's a debate about who the greatest of all time is, uh, you should just 
you should give up watching basketball. They said it in various forms, they, but but essentially it was there's no way that anybody could continue that uh, that that comparison. And look, I understand where the comparisons came from or come from, since I'm not convinced that people are going to let go of those comparisons. We have a generation of fans and media members who never saw Jordan play or the way the game was played in his era and started looking at statistics and awards and began making comparisons based on those. Not the game, not the elements that are not covered by numbers or awards, but have everything to do with how those numbers or awards are achieved. Not for an individual, but for a team. That's the missing element for me and anybody who brings analytics to the table and tries to tell a story through numbers alone is that there are intangible elements like leadership, like how many are you, how many sprints are you are, are you winning in in practice? How are you challenging your teammates in practice? How much are you willing to sacrifice, whether it's in practice or whatever it might be? Those are intangibles that do not show up on the score sheet and yet they do. They don't score they don't appear as individual statistics. They show up in team statistics or they show up in the statistics for a teammate. And we've just become enthralled with looking at individual stats, advanced analytics, you know, uh, wins over replacement. I mean, you can go down the line. There's all kinds of cute little numbers but they don't fully and we say them as if they mean everything they mean something but they always have to be put in context there are a number of other numbers that you have to consider and i'm going to present a couple of them that are basic that that anybody could look up doesn't take a whole lot of computation to figure them out and yet they are profound and i never hear anybody reference them it comes down to this though, when we get to intangibles, when you played with Michael Jordan, and I dare say you will not find a single teammate who would contradict this, you always believed you were going to win. No matter what the circumstances, no matter the opponent. The argument that I see crop up now and then to suggest LeBron James is more and has done more than Michael is to suggest that there is more talent in the game today. These are the people who couldn't fathom how for the Warriors uh, for a couple years, including on championship teams, Zaza Pachulia would ever start ahead of JaVale McGee. Okay, so first of all, consider that if you are disputing that, if you don't understand that, then you are saying, I actually know better than a, a coach who coached a team to a championship. You're saying, yeah, I not only could have coached that team to a championship, I could have done it better. The, the audacity, the arrogance, the idiocy of making that claim is, I think, self-evident. And the reason, reason I, again, I understand where it comes from, because to those people who say, of course, JaVale McGee is 10 times the player Zaza Pachulia is, is because they believe that athleticism rule supreme. 
or dynamic plays, crushing lobs from all sorts of angles has to be way better than a putback off the glass or a 13-foot jumper when the opposition dares you to take it by leaving you open. The guy who can crush a dunk and run like a gazelle has to be so much better than the guy whose vertical appears to be six inches and is no threat to go by anyone. This is a first grade level of understanding basketball. Because when we're talking about the players in question, what the first graders don't see, what they don't understand, is that when you are a role player, as both Javal and Zaza were and are, in the case of Javal, your most important contributions are when you don't have the ball. If you're a big, that means how good is your screen setting? How, how easily are Steph and Clay getting open when you're on the floor because you were able to put a body on their guy and you were able to do it in rhythm and at the right time? How well do you communicate defensively? Yeah, you might block shots, but how many times did you miss a rotation and or were in the wrong place or your timing was off and the opposition scored an easy bucket? Because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. How is your timing and spacing when an offensive play is run? Are you getting in the way? Are you messing up the rhythm and the timing? How how well are you boxing out whether or not you get a rebound? That's where the box score can be completely misleading. Now, since we're talking about the last dance, they didn't get into this. But I can tell you for a fact that this is true. That toward the end, with Dennis... The Bulls became frustrated with him because Dennis became enamored with the attention that having big rebounding numbers brought him. He cared about rebounding to a point where it became counterproductive for the team as a whole. He chased rebounds the way some guys chase points at the expense of his team. Now, the first grader can't possibly understand how grabbing a rebound could ever be a bad thing. It's either a second possession on offense or it completes a stop on defense, right? And it's those are hustle it's a hustle play, right? But what not what is not being counted is the time Rodman gambled to go for a defensive rebound, not in his area, didn't box out, didn't get the rebound, and now left the team exposed when the other team recovered it because now He's not anywhere near his guy. His guy's not boxed out. Other team gets the ball, quick pass, easy layup. How de- and, and how psychologically devastating that is to a team. Or, and this is what he would do a lot, when he wouldn't rotate defensively or did so slowly because he was more interested in being in position for a rebound. Now again, the first grader will look at that and go, well, yeah, and he has good instincts for rebounding. The problem with that is, Good defenses operate on the premise that I am going to rotate to cover for my teammate if he pressures the ball or forces the offense in a certain direction. We don't have individual responsibilities. Dennis Rodman rebounded a lot. He was not, on defense, simply a rebounder. We all have to, in a good defense, in a great defense, everybody has to be, as Pat Riley liked to say, on a string, all connected. 
So when the ball moves, we all adjust our positioning in order to help each other. Now, if I get burned because a teammate is slow to help or isn't where I expect him to be or has decided to hug up against his guy because he doesn't want to go help on mine and now the ball is dished to his man and he scores and in the box score, it's going to look like he got lit up. Now the trust is lost. Now I'm unsure if he'll be there. Now I'm hesitant to press up. Now I'm thinking, man, I got to protect myself because now my guy's going to score and, uh, and I'm going to look bad instead of if they score, we look bad. And then that makes things easier for the opposing offense to go where they want to go, uh, not where I want to send them, to exploit the weakest links in the defense. So now Rodman has great rebounding numbers. But Steve Kerr or Ron Harper's or Scott Burrell's assignment is getting unexpected buckets, nullifying whatever Rodman's might signify, but even more important, breaking the collective trust of my team that we are in this together. We're not in this for Dennis to make sure that he's averaging 15 rebounds a game. We're in this, ultimately, to win the freaking game. That is how statistics lie. And why building an argument by simply spouting averages, particularly individual averages, is below first grade level. It's preschool. Largely because our understanding of numbers should be way more sophisticated. But, and I've promised you this, there are basic numbers that I never hear mentioned in this debate between Jordan and LeBron. And let's face it, the reason that we have this discussion is because LeBron is the most prominent player to play the game since Michael Jordan. I know we got Kobe. I know what he did. But Kobe had that that weird nexus, and I believe he was the most important player on the team even when they won their three-peat. But you can't ignore that he had such a dynamic player as Shaq next to him. That's always going to undercut him. And even though he came back and he won two more, that's, that's always going to be the dividing line. So the basic numbers that no one ever talks about in this comparison between Michael and LeBron. Let's start with the number of teams in the league. There were 23 when Jordan started and 29 when he finished with the Bulls and no more than 27 for the better part of his career. That's a hundred plus players, a hundred plus players in the NBA who previously wouldn't have been good enough to make the cut. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That's watering down the overall talent in the league. Here's another number. The average age of an NBA player has steadily, uh, steadily rose 
from around 26 and a half to nearly 28 during Jordan's Bulls run. In other words, as Jordan got older and more experienced, so did the rest of the league. Didn't really gain an advantage by being uh, being around because the rest of the league was sticking around too. There was familiarity. There was understanding. Comparatively, the league has gotten progressively younger during LeBron's tenure. As he has gotten smarter and more experienced, the competition has become less so. And there's been more of that inferior talent to fatten up on because the league has expanded in teams. Now, while individual talent has improved through advances in training methods and technology and nutrition, I will never debate you on that. Uh, the, the number of players who can shoot from range, the ball handling skills, the balance, the speed, the quickness, all of that, the quality, all of that has risen. It's, it's at least the, the median line has risen. I think still the greatest players are the greatest players and could transcend their generations. But by and large, everybody has gotten better individually. Everybody shoots from deep. Everybody can handle more so than back in the day. There was far more specialization. But the team aspect of the game, which requires a more developed skill set and kind of a whole different skill set, along with a deeper cerebral understanding of the game, that is in very limited supply. That's what LeBron has gained over the years, is the understanding of how the team game works and to be able to develop his own skills in that, along with just a general confidence. Lee gets younger and younger. You look around, the guys that you battled through the years, they're gone. You don't have to go through them anymore. You have new young guns. And yeah, while they might have a certain athletic advantage, you having been around, realize that's not the name of the game. That's why LeBron surrounds himself with veterans. The Kyle Corvers and the Jared Dudleys. Again, the first grader looks at it and goes, is, is giving Jared grief on, on social media saying, you average this. You don't know, you're, you're not any good because you average this. Has no idea what Jared knows about the game and knows how to be effective averaging that. Because if averaging that weren't, uh, was, was the definition of the value of a player, then that player wouldn't be in the league anymore. Jared is for a reason. And I just give that as an example. Kyle Korver is for a reason. So take those into consideration, those numbers, how the league has expanded and how it has grown younger. LeBron James, as of right now, this season, is playing against the youngest talent in the history of the NBA. It's a flat 26 years old average age. That's the youngest in the history of the league. You don't think that's a factor? You don't think that's a a big factor? It reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's uh, book, Outliers, where the conditions in which you grew up and the time of year you were born had a huge influence on 
your success or those who became successful had a huge impact on them. I would recommend checking it out. This to me, the age of the league, the number of players in the league, uh, is fits right in with Gladwell's theory. Proven theory, I might add. But we've gone way off track. Or no, we haven't. We haven't gone way off track, but I do want to get to looking at uh, parts 9 and 10 of the series. I'm calling it a series. I'm not calling it a documentary for reasons that I've stated before, but essentially because I don't think it was a balanced uh, view of Jordan or the Bulls. Elements that they didn't go into. We had the gratuitous appearance of his kids. And that's the only time we had them speak and they had we had them speak about uh, you know how they weren't allowed to be in the arena in, in Utah because the fans were so hostile, which is a nice word when we get into language. It's a nice way of describing Utah Jazz fans. In any case, uh, nothing about LeBron, uh, excuse me, Michael Jordan, the family man. I mean, literally nothing in 10 parts. And to be fair, there wasn't a whole lot on anybody else as a family man. But let's face it, Michael Jordan, his relationship with his father uh, and his mother, like, doesn't it beg the question, what's the relationship between Michael as a father? What's the relationship with Michael and the mother of his kids or his kids themselves? Uh, in any case, uh, numbers, whether we're talking rings, final appearances, assists, points, or anything else, can't do Jordan justice. That's where any conversation about Jordan not being the best, or more specifically, LeBron being better, started. And this 10-part series should have put an end to it. Parts 9 and 10 also should have put to bed the idea that Jerry Krause broke up the Bulls. As we learned... Phil Jackson actually brought it to an end by declining Jerry Reinsdorf's offer to come back for another year. And Phil turned it down because he no longer believed that even with everybody coming back, that they could do it again. That he could do it again. He needed a break, he said. It was time for it to end, he said. I thought it was very telling that after they finished off the Jazz, they're on the court, Phil is embracing Michael and he's telling him on the court essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here about how he pulled off a miracle of sorts. You, you did it again. And Michael keeps saying, I always believed we'd get it done. I never stopped thinking that. And there's a resoluteness in the look in his face. And you know what Phil doesn't say? He doesn't say, I thought so too. Instead, he looks, he has this expression on his face like he's amazed that Jordan's faith was never shaken. Now, I for one don't blame Phil, by the way, for getting out while the getting was good. With the looming lockout, with Scotty either a shadow of his former self or gone altogether, a great unknown stood in front of them and a vital piece of their success would be gone. And as uh, in uh, a piece, a great piece done by Ramona Shelburne, who talked to Jerry Reinsdorf about all this. Again, this is this is like this is very smart on Ramona's part. This documentary didn't wasn't completely favorable to Jerry Reinsdorf. 
if you want to go out and get an interesting story, find out, find someone who may feel jilted by the prevailing opinion of the day. <laughs> and if you have a big enough platform, they're probably going to cooperate and they're going to tell you their side of the story. That's essentially what was kind of missing in this series, is that we didn't always get the other side. We didn't get, we didn't get the other side of the gambling that Michael did. We didn't fully get the other side of Jerry. Obviously, Jerry Krause wasn't around. I was referring to Jerry Reinsdorf. We didn't get full Jerry Reinsdorf. We didn't get Jerry Krause, obviously, because he wasn't around uh, when, when this was put together. So, but all that said, um, you know, it's clear now that they could have found a way to bring it all together, and yet they couldn't have. Scotty wasn't going to come back on a one-year deal. Uh, and, and But even before that, they never got to that point because Phil didn't want to come back, and Michael wasn't going to play for anyone other than Phil, with or without Scotty. Now, I don't blame Phil for getting out while the getting was good. Because as I said, with the looming lockout, with Scotty either a shadow of his former self or gone altogether, uh, the great unknown of the, uh, the pending uh, lockout, uh, a vital piece of their success would be gone. Uh, there were no young guns on the roster knocking on the door of stardom. There were no assets to swing a deal for one. They didn't have a lottery pick or anything close to it. They didn't have any great players, even veteran players, that you could have flipped to a team that some team out there with a young, aspiring talent would have said, okay, well, you know, we'll take them for him. You know, Tony Kukoc might have been the closest thing. Certainly, Scottie Pippen was not. Uh, that ended up being a sign and trade. But I didn't even, I should have checked. I don't even know what they got back in, in return. Uh, but I guarantee you it wasn't anything significant. And and look, this is why players building teams isn't a wise move for the long-term viability of teams. Because the players want, want to stay on the road and not make any changes until the wheels fall off. If their car, if they're driving a car that is in first place, they want to drive it until it blows a tire or the engine blows up or it just, it can't go. A GM wants to stay on the road until the car's tread gets thin and the oil needs changing and fresh spark plugs are in order. And excuse me if I'm belaboring this analogy. But the GM isn't just looking at I'm ahead. He's looking at how the car is running and whether the other cars are gaining on him and looking at the odometer and looking at his tires and looking at his oil gauge and going... Ah, uh, boy, the end is near and I'm not going to wait until the car is sitting on the side of the road and needs a complete overhaul. I got to pull over. I got to pull over and I got to get I got to fix some things. So, if Michael should be at, mad at anybody, it's Phil. Jerry Reinsdorf was apparently willing in spite of all that I just said to keep the car beyond its warranty. And Phil had the chance to be part of that car. The opportunity to coach Mike another, uh, Mike another year. Think about that. He had the opportunity to coach Mike another year and figure it out. 
And he said, nah, I'll walk. Fresh air will do me good. By the way, and I've promised this for a number of people, I'm slightly miffed at the series editors because maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't. Uh, there was a clip of me, a voice clip of me. Hmm, I think it was the beginning. No, it was in the uh, ninth episode. Uh, they used a clip of me saying to Phil before game seven. I think it actually introduced the clip. Uh, introduced, no, I could be wrong. I got to go back and look. My kids came and grabbed me and, uh, and said, Dad, I think this is you. Uh, or is this you? Anyway, it was before Game 7 against the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. And it has, and again, I should know the exact wording, but the effect of this doesn't feel like just the end of a playoff series, but the end of an era. Now, the reason that I'm miffed is I promise you that wasn't the whole statement. And I was working for the Washington Post at the time. I assure you that I asked a question. Because I even had somebody who, who texted me and said, hey, was that you asking that question? And I think somebody on social media asked the same thing. And they asked if I was asking the question of Mike. It was actually a Phil. But I, it, look, technically, I didn't, answer, I didn't ask a question. And there's nothing that bothers me more in my business today than reporters or media people who don't ask questions. They make statements. And then expect the subject to comment on their statement without even asking them to comment. They just throw a statement out there and then wait. Or they're what I consider as lazy as lazy can be and simply say, talk about, and then name a subject. Talk about Pippin's 30 points. Talk about uh, the dust up between Rodman and Carl Malone. Uh, I want to keep my clean rating, so I'm just going to say WTF. Do you, and I'm speaking to reporters who do this, do you bear any responsibility for the shape of your report? Have you given any sort of forethought of what you'd like to know? And I, I'm, again, you can go back to bullying. If this is bullying other reporters, so be it. Because I'm not looking to intimidate anybody or take advantage of somebody's vulnerable I'm looking to challenge you to make you better as Scott Burrell said talk about means the reporter or suggests that the reporter has no idea what he just witnessed he or she just knows they witnessed something and so they throw that something out there as a topic now the reason that bothers me is because we're all judged together. I spent most of my career trying to get my uh, my subjects, people in the league, whoever I'm talking to, to see me separately from the rest of the media because I don't want to carry the responsibility of what the hell everybody else is doing, good or bad. Judge me on my own. But that's not the way things generally work. When NBA players or pro athletes get into trouble, then the general public says, see, there they go again. Those lazy, selfish, overpaid players are doing it again. Doesn't matter who it is. It's, you know, paint with that broad brush. So I know that's the case. And I know that 
the general public is having a hard time uh, trusting the media these days. And we bring some of it on ourselves. We've gotten lazy. The system, again, same as with the, I was talking about the players. System has done some of it. Like we don't have the checks and balances that we once had. It's way too easy to put stuff out there. I've been guilty of it myself. Putting stuff out there that hasn't been thoroughly or sufficiently vetted. And then it turns out to be incorrect. Uh, Or just simply not well expressed enough. Expressed well enough. And people lose a little bit of trust. I get it. So it's incumbent upon all of us to try to do this to the best of our ability, knowing that we're not always going to be perfect. That we're sometimes we're going to get it wrong. Sometimes we're going to ask a question that somebody takes offense to, even a good question. Sometimes they're going to take offense to. But it doesn't mean you, you don't put the effort in to trying to ask a good question. And I promise you, I promise you that that statement was not where I left it. I added something. Like, and I, granted, look, I have learned to frame my questions more effectively as my career has gone on. I'm better now than I was. I'm sure I've asked my share of closed questions, which is kind of you're asking and you get a yes or no, or kind of preempting, not leaving it open enough, uh, presaging what somebody is going to say by kind of inserting your opinion. Uh, looked like that game was really tough or you guys were really struggling there in the last minute rather than saying what what happened in the last minute or how are you feeling in the last minute that's not predetermining the answer or making it easy for somebody to say yeah you know yeah we were struggling a bit uh but any in any event um i've learned how to answer questions more effectively i'm still learning i'm still trying to get better but i promise you even back then I followed that statement up with, what does it feel like to you? Feels like not just the end of a playoff series, but the end of an era. Phil, what does it feel like to you? And if I didn't, if I didn't phrase it exactly that way, that's the way I will phrase it. I get the opportunity in another situation to do that. So that's my promise to you. All right, that does it for this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary Buker and Friends, part of the United WeCast Network. Uh, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want us to do something for you, send a screenshot of that review or rating to at Buker Friends uh, on Twitter, and you will be eligible to win a prize. Still have the Kobe Bryant uh, t-shirt from his memorial that was, I believe, only given out to those who attended it. It's a large, it's never been worn, didn't come in a box, so I can't say it's still in the box, but it is as fresh as when they handed it to me. And that is for someone, we still need to, I think we need about, I don't know, 19 more reviews, and then we can have the drawing and give that away, and then we can move on to the next prize. But it's up to you guys to get me there. Need your help on this. All right, that does it for this episode. Uh, Believe Will Blackman will be joining me in the next one. Although the NBA is starting to heat up, so we may have more NBA subjects to dive into before we get back to Will and more NFL-centric stuff. In the meantime, please stay safe, please stay sane, and as always, thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 